Hey, hello, hello, hello. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. I'm your host, D-O-T-T-L-E-Y. It is Sunday, April 23rd. This week, we are going to ask, why do Republican voters not know that most poor people are white? 70% of Americans and poverty are of Anglo-Saxon descent. We'll try to answer that today. Again, this is the Common Sense Party Podcast. I'm your host, D-O-T-T-L-E-Y. I'd like to shout out our frequent listeners from Brussels, Belgium, Ashburn, Virginia, Wellford, Cordona, California. We've got France, Italy, Snellville, Georgia, Council Bluff, and San Francisco, and many, many more. Again, tell a friend to tell a friend. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Our mission is to inform our listeners on topics that affect the everyday rate. You can rate, review, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We are available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, Pandora, Google Podcasts, uh, TuneIn, yes, we're still working on Apple. Give us five stars, give us four stars, give us three stars, give us two stars. Give us any stars. If you don't give us any stars, I'll just assume that we are doing right. Alright, for our first story, people in power don't give up power willingly. Alright, we have a recording of... Republicans trying to change early voting. All right, this is, I guess, one of Trump's uh, voting people. One of his lawyers that tried to overturn the election. They're talking about changing early voting. Check it out. If we, if the Republicans are able to hold the state house and, and reclaim the state senate then maybe it's possible to get rid of 45 days of early voting in Virginia. 45 days. I mean, there are several things that they can do. They can get rid of same-day registration, but they can't do that now because the Democrats still hold the state Senate. The person you just heard from was uh, Cleta Mitchell, who's important for a couple of different reasons. First of all, she was involved in the Trump legal team that tried to prosecute their court cases having to do with the uh, big lie back in 2020. So if you're just curious how good of a lawyer she is, she willingly chose to be involved in that effort, and you remember how it went. Um, But importantly there, she's not talking about 2020. She's not talking about their grievances about past elections. She's talking about the ways they want to make uh, the future elections unwinnable for the Democrats. There was nothing there about new ideas, nothing there about motivating voters, all of it. And you'll see more soon is about trying to stop as many people as possible from voting. But in particular, young people, which we're going to be focusing on. Before we get into more of her video, though, here's a little bit of the context. She was giving a presentation at the Republican National Committee donor retreat in Nashville on Saturday. The presentation uh, that she was giving had more than 50 slides and was labeled a level playing field for 2024. Offered a window into a strategy that seems designed to reduce voter access and turnout among certain groups, including students and those who vote by mail, both of which tend to skew uh, democratic. So that's the idea. Here are a few of her ideas. 
Virginia, we have a great task force in every county in Virginia, and we have a great statewide coalition. They, the governor just signed a bill yesterday that does away with signatures on absentee ballot applications and ballots, and now it has to be the last four digits of a social security number and a birth year. And we need to make sure that there's transparency and people are watching and verifying. That makes Virginia back in play, frankly, um, to be able to have some authentication. And again, having first day in-person voting campaigns. Uh, Wisconsin is a big problem because of the first day, because of the polling locations on college campuses. There are five ones and threes their goal for the Supreme Court race was to turn out 240,000 college students and that's the Supreme Court race. And we don't have anything like that, and we need to figure out how to do that and how to combat that. She's interested, hypothetically, into both of those things, how to motivate the voters, I guess, but then also how to combat it. And uh, I think we all understand where she's going with that. She doesn't like that the polling places are on college campuses. She doesn't like that it's so easy to vote. She doesn't want it to be easy to vote. She doesn't want those college students to vote. It's really as simple as that. I think... Look, I, I don't know on any given day how many people are watching our show for the first time. Maybe they're just beginning to tune into political news. Like, this might come as a big surprise to you. You look at the picture of her in there, and she looks like the m most benign person in the world. But what she is doing is getting together in secret, except thanks to Lauren Windsor for leaking the video, to coordinate with other powerful Republicans to try to stop as many people from voting in as many ways as possible. Getting rid of the polling places on college campuses because they have no game plan to get the, the students to vote for them. They just don't want the students to vote at all. They want to stop the early voting. They want to stop the same day registration. They want to make it as likely as possible that people that do absentee ballots make some sort of minor error in terms of what they've signed so that they can nullify it. Every single bit of this is designed to stop Democrats from being able to successfully vote because that is the only strategy going forward. And they're not really being open about it. This was, after all, a private meeting, but thanks to it being leaked, we know exactly what they're saying behind closed doors. Okay. That's for 2024. Uh, please spread the message of anyone who is not registered or needs to register. Go ahead and register to vote now because they are scared of your vote. Young people, they are terrified of you voting. They are concocting a plan to stop you from voting. Stop students, stop independents, stop Democrats. People in power do not give up power willingly. They have to be forced out. So go ahead and force them out. Please, force them out. Force them out of power. That is in Virginia. You see, there was an election. I, I spoke about it before in uh, Wisconsin where they got the ass handed to them and the liberal one. Again, Republicans don't have policy. None. Absolutely none. No policy whatsoever. None. They have no policy to make everything better for the common person. All right. So please. Tell a friend to tell a friend, register someone to vote, independent, even get the Republicans in on it. They have no policy. All right, moving on to our next story. The House Republicans. House Republicans don't like poor people and they don't like veterans because they are going after poor people, SNAP, uh, public schools. They don't all of that, even veterans. 
just because they have no policy. So, check this one out. Conservatives who are convinced, and in some cases are right, that they've been left behind economically, that the future is looking incredibly bleak, that the next generation is going to have it bit worse than they did, put Republicans in power, and then the Republicans do nothing but uh, nonsense investigations of Biden combined with culture war attacks on like the LGBTQ plus community or something. That would be bad enough. But when they go in and actively harm the economic position of poor conservatives, that's like chef's kiss as a political strategy. I mean, look, that would be a self-sabotaging, a suicidal political strategy if there was anyone in right-wing media who was going to point out that that's what they were doing. That's the only place that the right gets their news from, so they're probably not even going to know. But the second part that makes it amazing is it will make their economic position worse. It will make things harder for them. And then they will be convinced by the right to hate Joe Biden for that. When they have trouble getting the food stamps and the welfare that they need because, you know, I'm going to blow the mind of anyone who's only listened to, like, Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly all their lives, but most of them are poor white people, um, they're going to have a harder time. They're going to become more desperate. They're going to be trained to take that fear that they have about the future, that their their retirement is going to be pushed back, that they'll never own their home, that their kids can't go to school, that you know one healthcare emergency is going to bankrupt them entirely, and they're just going to put it on to like trans high school athletes or whatever. It's like a perfect self-sustaining political strategy. Absolutely. And they continue to use the debt limit, like this game of chicken. Like, are we going to raise it again? Oh, we shouldn't increase the debt because people have this belief that Oh my God, well, if we default on the debt, Uncle Sam's going to knock on my door and be trying to get dollars out of my wallet in my pocket. That's not going to happen. The debt limit has been raised 78 separate times since 1960. Nothing bad has ever happened. However, it is the case if the government doesn't spend enough money and ensure that there's enough money in the economy, they can drive the private sector into deficit. You'll see more banks giving out loans to meet the need for dollars in the economy because there will be things of value out there that we're creating that don't have dollars to match that up. That's the real constraint on government spending, as Ellen Greenspan, who is not particularly progressive, has said before on the floor of Congress. And so it's this imaginary problem that they love to create and use as this tool. All right, what can we cut? What can we take away? Great, now people will be more desperate to work. They'll take jobs for lower wages. Profits will stay high. We'll get the returns because we're the shareholders. It's great for us. Yeah, just want to lower the power and increase the desperation of the working class at all points, while meanwhile telling their base that they're the ones that are fighting back against the economic elites, the globalists, and all that, as they do their direct bidding. Um, Just really fast, want to preview a little bit of some potential troubles for this, because remember, Kevin McCarthy does not have a big majority. Um, So Representative Andy Biggs has expressed openness to voting for the bill, but he does have a problem with the work requirements for food stamps, in that he thinks they should be stricter. None of this is extreme enough for some of these monsters. The current legislation, by the way, would apply work requirements to childless, able-bodied adults as old as age 56, up from age 49 today. Biggs said he also wants to see aid recipients work at least 30 hours a week instead of the 20 under the current law. It seems to me 20 hours is kind of a hobby instead of working, he told Semaphore. Congressmen, of course, known for their rigorous schedules and hard work ethic. Um, It's a hobby, he says, as he spits in the face of literally millions of conservatives that are struggling with that. Many of these people have difficulty 
working longer, spend a lot of money to travel, sometimes without cars, to get to these jobs that they're desperate to have so they can qualify for these benefits. Some of them struggle with physical and mental problems, but screw them, it's just a hobby after all. Uh, Tim Burchett also says uh, that he wants a 30-hour work requirement. Um, some, like Nancy Mace, are saying there's not enough time to actually read the bill, so that's good. Some are saying that they don't want to raise the debt limit for anything, no matter what, who cares what's in the bill, they're just not going to do it. And George Santos says he's a hard no. So, I mean, you can't trust what he says. Maybe he's lying. But as of right now, he says he's not going to be voting for it. Um, I know it's difficult to read the tea leaves when you have literally hundreds of people involved in it. But do you have any quick prediction about how this might go? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see more cuts. We're going to see more austerity. It sucks that at a time when the Federal Reserve's mission is to make the job market smaller, to have less jobs be available, they're saying, let's increase the work requirement to get food if you don't make enough to get food. It's absurd. I think people will fight back, but it's not going to be the constituents that Andy Biggs and Burchett are worried about. Uh, and so that's the main concern there, is there are people that are willing to vote for these guys because they like what they say in the media, but at the end of the day, they're making policy that's working against their actual self-interest economic. Again, Republicans vote against their own interests all the time. Makes no sense. They are cutting food stamps. Food stamps and SNAP. It's called SNAP. They're also going after veterans. But they say they fight for small government. But if you fight for small government, this is what happens. They do not like poor people. They don't. They are corporate slaves. So, what they're doing is, instead of cutting, which what they want to do, they want to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. They're going to go after food stamps and use the debt limit as a, a weapon. But, again... During Trump's, um, what, presidency, there you go, that's the word I'm looking for, during his presidency, they lifted it. The debt limit is just an arbitrary number that we give, the America gives itself so they can limit spending. But, since these wackos are still in control of the House, they want to hold the economy of the world hostage to get what they want so again please if you know a conservative or republican who voted any of these assholes in ask them do they pay attention to what they're doing democrats and independents are not the boogeymen these corporate slaves are Alright, here's another example of Republicans don't like poor people. The problems the Republicans have been having for almost months now in terms of like what they're going to extort or attempt to extort from the country to not crash the economy and have the United States default for the first time on its debt in its history. Um, they've been really flailing around looking for something ever since Donald Trump ordered them not to touch Social Security and Medicare. Now they're still going to try and find ways of cutting it, uh, but it's just not going to happen so explicitly in the debt ceiling. So Kevin McCarthy goes to uh, Wall Street and says, 
I've got an idea. Let's hurt poor people. Our proposal will also restore work requirements that ensure abled body adults without dependents earn a paycheck and learn new skills. That will grow our economy and help the supply chain. Right now, there are more job openings than people who are looking for jobs. You know why? It's in part because the Biden administration weakened work requirements. Incentives matter. And the incentives today are out of whack. It's time to get Americans back to work. First of all, the labor participation rate is back up to where it was in, uh, you know, pre-COVID levels. Yeah. Um, I mean, put, putting that aside, we know the job requirements do not incentivize people to go and get a job. Um, it is, there's no jobs for them that they qualify for. This is just absurd. It has, it, is, it has been a failure every time it's been attempted. Um, and to say this, too, within the context of the Fed literally disciplining labor as we speak because they want to curb inflation, which we now realize is not because of overemployment. It's because of corporate price gouging and the, the remaining supply chain issues. And we, you headlined this, the Iowa food stamp story. Iowa and other Republican states are going to spend millions of dollars in administrative costs to kick families off of food stamps with these work requirements. The fiscal responsibility Republicans are going to pay money, I mean, just like they didn't take the free money for Medicaid expansion, but now they're going to pay money to get people off of government programs because it's all about how much leverage can you have over somebody, including hunger. I want to leverage hunger to make sure that you take lower wages. And we're literally talking about, in terms of like these food stamp payouts for someone without any dependents, we're talking tens of dollars. Yeah. Tens of dollars. Like, I'm not gonna work because I'm getting 23 bucks a week to buy food. <laughs> I mean, this stuff is insane. It's it a little on the nose too, that he says it at the literal stock exchange. Yeah, and Politico reported this morning or the last night that um, with an article titled "McCarthy's Pitch to Shrink Food Aid," drawing skepticism from fellow Republicans. So he also wants to do this to snap as well. Obviously, in terms of like the other benefits that he can sort of curtail, and it's not—he's not even doing this. I would say with like a mandate to do so from his own caucus. Like I don't think—I think there are probably thirty to forty vulnerable sort of like. Um, Frontline swing seat Republicans that want nothing to do with in the this. House, yeah, with this type of. I plan. would guess. I don't think a lot of like, for example, freshman Republican in New York State or yes, some of the. I don't think they're going to want to vote for a bill that's like, yeah, we're going to vote to take away your social programs and cut your food stamps and make you work to get Medicare. And maybe if that was in a vacuum, Bradley, they would be okay with it. But it's within the context of a debt ceiling fight, right. and no regular person's like, let's crash the economy over twenty extra bucks for SNAP. It's all that, and oh, and also we might just default on our debt and shut down the government. It's just a, yeah, <laughs> uh, they, they've got nothing. That's that's why Trump is so valuable right now yeah, in this current right. moment. I mean, like what he's doing with the he, he you were out, but he came out with another ad about. DeSantis and Social, Social Security. Security. And oh, without a doubt. It's, it, that, I'm loving it. Without a doubt. 
Yeah, we've been saying that. Like, it's I mean, look, <laughs> yeah. we saw that with yeah. the, the, we saw this at the State of the Union. I mean, it's it's all it's a, the, the the guy has been cast. They have run out of of stuff to talk about, without a doubt. And um, they they just they basically just revert to their safe space. You know, he's there. He's do, giving that speech for donors, yeah. essentially. Um, is really what it's about. Like we're playing our role. We're going to attack poor people to the extent that we can, you know, without uh, the, the, the ability to attack Social Security and Medicare because Donald said that we couldn't do that. Yep. Talking to their overlord masters to to affect poor people. Poor people. Poor white people at that. If anyone knows anyone in Idaho that voted for a Republican senator and... Do they know they're going to be kicked off of food stamps? Do they know? Better question. Do you know a black person on food stamps in Idaho? Let me know. You can reach us at the common sense party pod at gmail.com. And let me know if you found a black person in Idaho being kicked off of food stamps. Again. Republicans. Do not like poor people. No matter what it is. I don't understand why. Don't understand. They don't like poor people. They will use them as pawns, but they won't like poor people. Politics is a civil service. You serve the people. Not the money. I've always said, if you help the people, the money will come. All right, uh, moving on to our next story. In Florida, they're banning books again. But listen to this Navy commander uh, message for punk ass parents. We, we believe that it's important that the education stay focused on the nuts and bolts. That's why we've done things like ban critical race theory in our K-12 schools. I'm not going to use your tax dollars to teach kids to hate our country. And for the 55th millionth time, critical race theory is a college level college level curriculum. Not K-12. Making up the boogie monster. We are to hate each other. That's unacceptable. And of course, quickly, critical race theory is not being taught to young children in Florida. The last thing before we go tonight, diversity makes us stronger. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who you just saw there, and Republicans in his state have been on a mission to restrict what children can be taught in schools. All of this moved former Navy Commander Wes Rexrode to speak up at his local school board meeting. And I want to share it with you. You know, on September 11, 2001, I was on board USS Theodore Roosevelt when religious fanatics who wouldn't even let women be educated flew planes into the World Trade Center in my Pentagon. I spent the last decade of my naval career fighting religious fascism abroad. Never thought I'd have to fight it right here in the United States of America. I grew up, I grew up in rural South Carolina and books got me out of the trail parks. My parents trusted those educators and the librarians to let me read what I needed to read. I spent 21 years in the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program 
Rommel Hyman Rickover said a questioning attitude was the key to the success of the nuclear power program. I want my son exposed to different ideas and different viewpoints so that he can learn to think critically and not be force-fed somebody else's opinion. We've all been exposed to different opinions. Makes us better. Makes us stronger. Adversity has made me stronger. I didn't sacrifice 21 years of my life to stand idly by for religious fanatics and other fanatics try to impose fascism on my country. I urge you to think about what a book ban needs and use transparency. I don't need anyone else telling my son what he can and cannot read. I'm very perfectly capable of determining that for myself. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening. I urge you to remember the Little Rock Nine. Thank you. Some very powerful words from former Navy Commander Wex, excuse me, Wes Rex Road, taking us off the air tonight. And he was a Caucasian man with the message to the punk-ass parents. Just monitor what your kids read. You are the parent. The government should not, again, the government should not be banning free speech for certain people. They're picking on people who can't fight for themselves. LBGT, minorities, and that guy wants to run for president. He fucking wants to run for president. How the fuck can you vote for somebody who wants to run for president? Oh my goodness. Please. Again, please tell a friend to tell a friend. Talk to a Republican. Get him out of the bubble. These people don't like poor people and they want to get rid of empathy. That's what diversity is. Diversity is empathy. All right. That was Florida. This is Texas. Uh, a while back, there was a book ban in Texas. So the judge told them that they can't ban free speech. So you know what they did? They took it up a notch. They said they're going to close all public libraries. Imagine somebody tells you that you can't use the public library. No books. No books. Absolutely book. No books are available to you. Check this out. Tonight, a Texas county has just voted to keep its entire public library system open after threatening essentially going nuclear and shutting them all down because they've been ordered to unban a bunch of books. We have members of our NBC News team's affiliate down in the area in Lano County inside this commissioner's special meeting where people were speaking out, talking about, hey, keep the libraries open, shut them down so we don't have to bring back these books we wanted to be banned. Listen to what was going down just within the last couple of minutes. The books that are in the library are not pornographic. None of them are. The list that you received, have you read any of them? I am in favor of closing the libraries temporarily until we find a solution to the pornographic filth we do have. So you hear folks on both sides there. This is a small community just outside Austin that's become the basically latest front line in the so-called culture war 
over about a dozen books, most of them for kids, like the classic In the Night Kitchen by Maurice Sendak, but also some books about race and social justice, like Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. There was a lawsuit filed by some people who live in Lano when these books were banned, and a federal judge said, hey, it's actually not constitutional to ban them. He said, you got to put them back into circulation. Aaron Gilchrist has been following the latest on this story. So when that judge said, hey, put it back into circulation, some of these officials in this county said, uh, you know, we're going to just maybe shut down the library system instead. They didn't actually do that, though. Yeah, no, it's it, we were watching this very closely, and the producer, uh, Ben, was texting me about this as I was sitting waiting to come in here. Shout out, Ben. Yeah, yep. on top of it for sure. And essentially, the, the, the judge there, the, the county executive, came back from a, a closed session, executive session, and said, you know what? Uh, we banned these books because not enough people were checking them out. That was part of the argument they made last year in, in, in this case. It, it, it I thought they really, were banning them because of the content. Well... They didn't say that outright. That was the sort of the accusation on the other side, that it was really a censorship move, not so much a circulation move. And, and honestly, in most circumstances, librarians make decisions about how to move books around if there's a circulation issue. It's unusual for the county to step in and make something like that happen. Uh, and he essentially accused the plaintiffs in this case of forcing the county to sort of run up the bill, paying for these legal procedures. And they said, you know what, all right, fine. We're not going to close the libraries. The libraries will stay open and the books will have to go back on the shelves in order for uh, the county to meet the requirement from the judge. You talked to one of the people who live in this county who brought a lawsuit, brought that lawsuit that basically said, we don't want these books to be banned. Tell, tell me more about that conversation. Yeah, we talked to Leela Green-Little, uh, who was sort of the leader of the group of plaintiffs in this case, and, and she essentially said that, you know, this is censorship and it's not okay. It's not something that she uh, wanted to see in the county libraries. It's not something a lot of people, a lot of folks who spoke, uh, a dozen or so people spoke tonight, tonight at that meeting, uh, and most of them were in favor of keeping the libraries open. A few people spoke and they talked about uh, there being porn in some of these books without really explaining why they felt that way or talking about uh, what they thought qualified as, as porn. But I want you to hear a little bit from Leela and, and what her reasoning is about why this was uh, a case that she wanted to uh, fight, an idea that she wanted to fight in terms of banning books and closing the libraries. It's awful. It's horrifying. And... Um is deeply disappointing to me um, to know that my county is uh, even considering uh, closing down a public library system. I can tell you that the concept of book banning is incredibly unpopular across um, all political persuasions. Uh, you know, independents, Republicans, and Democrats. It and it seems though, as though the debate here is going to continue, though. There were people who spoke at this meeting who said they wanted these books that they deemed pornographic children's books to be moved to a part of the library where only adults could have access mm -hmm. to them uh, or close the library. And so the, the, the push to do something isn't over. I have to ask, just because we showed it on the graphic and people might have this question, one of the books is about a farting leprechaun. What's the objectionable piece of that? So if if you... Uh, the, I've never read it, I don't know. And I haven't read it either, but there's, there's that book, there's another book that references, you know, butts and farts, and, and it's a children's book, and I think if you think about the copper, copper tone baby, uh, uh, that, that image of the dog pulling the shorts, I think it's something along those lines, cartoonish, that some people feel is inappropriate for children to have access to. Again. Half those people haven't read those books and the other half look at the title and think that teaching children about racism at an early age teaching them empathy for someone else is a bad thing trust me 
kids learn faster than you know and this is going to backfire on the republicans people in power don't give up power willingly it has to be snatched from them all right speaking of racism in i think it's one of the southern states republican official resigns over lynching recording shout out to people who recording these people that shit is awesome but we're in 2023 and we're still talking about lynching and i don't get it i really don't check this out officials calling black people racial slurs talking about wanting to lynch wanting to kill wanting to eliminate and also obviously they know hitmen i mean it's oklahoma let's go to the recording because now we got at least one resignation maybe more here it is they're insignificant in my life yes It is 2023. Um, the civil rights bill passed in 1968, 68, 67, around that time. So you're telling me someone who holds office in Oklahoma knows hitmen have no use for black people but is in power local power well it is 2023 and I hope that somewhere in that state they are teaching diversity because that is what happens when you do not teach diversity you have bigoted ignorant adults who want to go back to the good old days good old days for who not for me I am I'm 48 I'm from the Caribbean so if y'all want to go back to good old days y'all can do that we gonna fuck shit up truth be told that's all we don't stand for this and I live in that nine in the south so 
I got some people who live around in this parts who are in power who think that same way. They may not openly say it, but they do. But again, people in power don't give up power willingly. They have to be dragged. So, let's, it's 2023. We have elections coming up in 2024. Let's send the message to them. Get them out. Get them out. We don't play this. This is not us. We don't lynch. We don't do that. All right. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. I'm your host, D-O-T-T-L-E-Y. Our mission is to give you information on topics that affect you every day. You can rate, follow, subscribe, support, wherever you get your podcasts. We are available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, Pandora, Google Podcasts. Tune in and still working on Amazon. I mean Apple. Fine, Apple. Alright, for our main story. Black teen pulls into a driveway. Knocks on the door. Shot twice, survived. Why does why is it okay for the shooter to go down to jail and be released? They finally got him in custody, but it is the strangest thing we have two set of laws two set of americas all right check this out four-year-old white kansas city man accused of shooting a black teenager will be arraigned in court today andrew lester posted bond yesterday and was released from jail he's charged with two felony felony counts after last thursday's shooting authorities say he shot 16 year old ralph yarl twice after the teen accidentally went to the wrong home to pick up his brothers. Lester told police he lives alone and thought someone was trying to break in. Adriana Diaz has more. At a rally in the heart of Kansas City Tuesday evening, crowds said they've had enough. I have two young sons, two black sons, and this personally hit home what if that was my son that rang that doorbell. 16-year-old Ralph Yarl was shot in the head and then in the arm last Thursday when his family says he knocked on the wrong door while trying to pick up his twin brothers. Ralph went to an address on this road. This is Northeast 115th Street when in fact his little brothers were just a block away. You can see that next green street sign, that's Northeast 115th Terrace, just about 100 yards away. Attorney Lee Merritt represents the family. Our biggest concern is that this man never walks the street again. The charges that he has, if successfully convicted, will lead to life imprisonment. And that's enough for us. There was blood from the where he was at, all the way up, all over the door. Zach Dovell says Ralph came to his family's front door for help after the shooting. All we hear is a bunch of banging at our door. So then we call 911, they're like, yeah, there's a gunshot in the area, unidentified, and we're like, just don't answer the door. The police said don't answer the door? The operator, the operator told us not to answer. But after seeing Ralph's condition, Dovell and his mom went out to him. All we know is he was hurt, he needs to get help, and we need to get him. He needs to be the priority right now. 
Ralph's mom, Cleo Nagby, told CBS Mornings that her son is recovering, but still processing. Is Ralph able to communicate, Cleo, with you all? With no problem, he can walk and talk and all that stuff? He's able to communicate mostly when he feels like it, but mostly he just sits there and stares and the buckets of tears just rolls down his eyes. You can see that he's just replaying the situation over and over again. Ralph's aunt is helping care for him. What do you tell him to try to give him strength? Look at all these people that are pouring love into you, buddy. Then he goes, why are they making such a big deal? Because that's just who he is. He might try to be in the background and help everybody else. According to the criminal complaint, Lester told police he was, quote, scared to death. He says he thought someone was breaking in and says he saw a black male approximately six feet tall trying to open the storm door. Ralph told police he didn't try to open the door. And then Marie, his aunt, told us he is 5'8 and 140 pounds. A little different than six feet tall. Um, what else have we learned about Andrew Lester? Well, the neighbor we spoke to didn't know him. He said, you know, he was somebody who his little brother would go and, and mow the lawn or, or rake the lawn, but really didn't have much communication with him. We know that he lived alone, and he's going to be here at 1.30 today to be arraigned. He's currently, um, you know, the instructions he's been given is he's not to have any contact right now with the family. He is not in jail. He's, he's right now, he bonded out yesterday. He also is being monitored by his cell phone, um, but we will get his first uh, appearance today at this courthouse. So you've been talking to people in Kansas City. You know, the country is sort of has reacted very strongly to this case. I'm wondering what it's like in the community there. Well, Anne-Marie, I mean, um, I was about to say you can imagine, but I don't think you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody can imagine um, when something like this happens. And, um, you know, the people that we've spoken to, you know, we've heard time and time again, like you heard in the piece, this could have been my son. You know, this could have been my brother. This could have been my husband. And so it's 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 personal. It's visceral. Um, and everyone is rallying around this young man. I mean, his GoFundMe has already uh, raised millions of dollars and people are surrounding him um, with a lot of support. There was also uh, a march at his school yesterday. There were 1,500 students, administrators told us, that went outside the school and marched around the school chanting for him, supporting him. Um, and so, you know, this is a community like so many, too many in our country that is now hurting. Yeah, you know, Adriana, when I hear, you know, this could have been my son, this could have been my brother, I was thinking, this could have been fatal. And it is by the grace of God that this young man is still alive. It is unbelievable. Um, Adriana, thank you so much. All right. Like the lady said, this old white man who's 80 said, described a six foot black man trying to break into his home. Ralph is 5'8, 115 pounds at the most. You gotta be fucking kidding me. And they're gonna use the stand your ground law. You know what they do? There is a. First Amendment or a gun. I get the advertisement all the time. They want me to sign up for like $400. And they teach you what to say when the cops come. And the first thing they tell you is, I was afraid for my life. Just like the cops do when 
when you hear him say, oh, you, they shot him 96 or 67 times. They were fearful of their life. Fell for my ass. You have the gun. How the fuck can you be afraid of someone who has no gun? And he's a kid. And when do we knock on doors and get shot? What kind of country is this? What happens when someone knocks on your door? You look and you don't say anything. He could have not answered the door. And from the description is, I don't even think he said, who is it? Because if he said, who is it? He would have said something. Tell him wrong house. I just don't understand. But, again, they're going to use the standing ground law. And try to get him off that way. But, the standing ground law is awful. Check this out. I have concern because of the culture. Uh, and in uh, American jurisprudence, it is difficult to convict a white man for harming a black child. It should not be so. And I'm hoping this, this case turns the tide. Four-year-old Andrew Lester was arraigned today in Clay County, Missouri, for shooting 16-year-old Ralph Yarl last week after Yarl rang his doorbell. Lester pleaded not guilty to charges of first-degree assault and armed criminal action. His next court date is scheduled for June 1st. And remember, the reason why Mr. Lester was arraigned just today, which is a week after he shot Ralph Yarl, is because police let Andrew Lester go. The night of the shooting, Lester told the police that he acted in self-defense, that he was scared to death of Jarl's size. According to the family of Ralph Jarl, the teen is five foot eight and weighs 140 pounds. Also remember that Missouri is a standard ground state where you do not have the duty to retreat if you reasonably fear death or bodily harm. You don't have to retreat. You can just shoot. So Andrew Lester stood his ground and police let him go. That is why hundreds of protesters gathered this weekend in Kansas City's Northland, which is north of the Missouri River, and it's where the shooting happened. They wanted Jarl's shooter arrested and they wanted him charged and they wanted the Northland community to grapple with its history of racism. When black residents in that area first heard of Jarl's shooting, they echoed the Missouri NAACP's president's feeling that it brought back the sentiment that African-Americans, black people, just don't belong there. Now, what is notable about Northland, aside from the fact that 60% of its residents are white, is that it sits within Clay County, which is a staunchly Republican area. Clay County voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump both times, just like the state itself. Missouri voted for Trump in both elections. Missouri is also one of about 30 states with standard ground laws on the books. It was also one of the states that enslaved black people before the end of the Civil War. And if you're wondering what those two maps have to do with each other, it turns out they have a lot to do with each other. The right to armed self-defense, like standard ground, stems from the Second Amendment, which says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. That amendment has been the NRA's rallying cry for years. Here's the thing. The Second Amendment was ratified when Southern states enslaved black people. And that amendment did not apply to enslaved people. Instead, historians argue that it was created because of them. 
The militias referenced in the Second Amendment were primarily there to aid slave patrols and shut down slave revolts. They were worried about uprisings. In 2021, historian Carol Anderson described the event in 1791 that was behind that fear. It was the Haitian Revolution. Now, this country has a long history of gun policy that buttresses the power of white Americans at the expense of black people. Historians argue that that history is still alive today, both in the application of our gun laws and in American culture itself. It was seemingly alive in November 2021 when Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who fatally shot two men and wounded another during a Black Lives Matter protest, when Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted. When he stood trial, his lawyers argued that Rittenhouse was just exercising his Second Amendment right to stand his ground, to be part of a well-regulated militia, to defend himself with a gun. And after the courts acquitted him, gun culture celebrated him. Donald Trump welcomed him to Mar-a-Lago. Rittenhouse became a sort of gun celebrity. In fact, this weekend, Kyle Rittenhouse was the headliner of a Republican gun fundraising event in Idaho, which was promoted as trigger time with Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse received a standing ovation the same weekend that Ralph Yarrell's family was waiting to see if their son would recover from his stand your ground shooting. That is where American gun culture is. As for Andrew Lester in Missouri, we are waiting to see if this case turns the tide on that very culture. Two Americas, man. Two Americas. And I hope that the people actually wake up. The Second Amendment is not the hill to die on. It's not the hill to die on. People kill people. Guns don't kill people. Alright, two Americas. Check this out from Bo. Oh, howdy there, Internet people. It's Bo again. So today, we are going to talk about the eternal question. Why? Why? Uh, I got a message about the two situations at the wrong house. And I initially thought it was just one person making these comparisons. So I texted it to a friend who does something kind of similar and oftentimes will send stuff back and forth. It's just kind of like, hey, look at this weird one I got. Um, it was at that point that I found out that this wasn't a one-off thing and that a whole bunch of people were making these comparisons. So I feel like it's worth going over. Okay. So if you don't know what I'm talking about. There were two instances where somebody went to the wrong house and wound up getting shot. And some comparisons were made. I'm asking you because you were the only person I saw that covered both from your side. You're big on social justice and have often said you don't really see racism against white people. Well, here's your moment. The two wrong house shootings. The poor black kid that got shot had people come in from out of state to speak for them, got an invitation to the White House, got tons of coverage, and got millions in their GoFundMe. The white woman didn't get any of that and only raised about $100,000. Tell me there's not a bias. Okay. Um... The eternal question of why. 
seems important. But before we get into that, I just to recap, in one instance, a, a kid goes and knocks on the door, and the homeowner is reported to have shot through the, the glass door, the storm door, and hit him above the left eye, just above the left eye. And he survived. And to answer somebody else's question about how that happened, the only thing I can do is quote Pulp Fiction. God himself came down and stopped that bullet. Um, generally speaking, a wound to the ocular cavity, to the head, you don't recover from that. Um, but he has survived. In another instance, a woman, a white woman, was uh, in a car with her friends in a very rural area. They pulled into a driveway and the homeowner came out and popped off two rounds. One of them hit her and killed her. Okay, so let's go over the list of things that were different, the comparisons that are being made, and ask the question of why. Why did people come in from out of state to speak for the kid? Because the reported shooter was not in custody. The white woman didn't need that. Because as soon as it happened, police staged an hour-long standoff to take the person into custody. So she, she didn't need somebody to come in from out of state to speak for her. Uh, he got an invitation to the White House. It's worth noting I did not fact check this. I have no idea if he actually got an invitation to the White House. Um, I would point out that he survived. She did not. I don't know what good an invitation to the White House would do for her. Got tons of coverage. Why? Because the shooter wasn't in custody and people came in from out of state to make a bunch of noise. Got millions in their GoFundMe and it says she only got 100000 Again, I don't know if that's true. Um, but that would make sense. She is... is the, the GoFundMe for her is for her last expenses. He has a lot of medical bills, I'm sure. Um, you know, miracle or not, there was probably uh, some pretty intensive medical procedures that went along with that. And then he has to live with what happened to him. So yeah, it kind of makes sense that his is going to be higher. Um, generally speaking, you know, funerals don't cost millions. Um, so, I don't know that this comparison makes any sense at all. It, it seems as though somebody's trying to draw a false equivalency between two different things. Yes, the outcomes are different because these situations are drastically different. Um, the, the idea 
that, you know, an invitation to the White House even made it into this shows that it's not a real comparison. It's searching for a grievance. It, it, you're looking for something to, to view as oppression. It, it's, it's not real. It's not real. Every one of these things that's listed completely makes sense. Uh, if your first reaction to people accidentally going to the wrong house and getting shocked is to look at their skin tone and try to figure out how you, by a similar pigment, were somehow damaged, your priorities are a little mixed up. Anyway, it's just a thought. Y'all have a good day. Again, two Americas, people. Two Americas. They're searching for victimhood. That's what they're doing. They're searching for victimhood to see that if they why the black kid got more than a white person. And again, two Americas. People in power will not give up power willingly. Alright. This has been the Common Sense Party Podcast. I hope today we've brought a little more information to our listeners and also again tell a friend to tell a friend so we can pass the message. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Rate, review, comment, subscribe, all for free. We're available at Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. Uh, yes, we're still working on Apple. I am your host, D-O-T-T-L-E-Y. This has been Common Sense Party Podcast, and we will see you next week. Deep in the South Pacific... A tumultuous and untamed new continent has erupted, spawned by a highly unstable new element known as Theta-7. If this powerful new element could be controlled, whoever possessed it would be the undisputed ruler of the world. One man, General Lucas Plague, is determined to hold that title. And it's up to a rugged team of mountaineering experts, led by Commander Mike Summit, to stop him. Employing revolutionary new gravity lock and laser cable technology to traverse the ever-changing terrain of the high frontier, Mike Summit's Sky Commanders and General Plague's Raiders are locked in mortal combat, with the fate of the entire world hanging in the balance.